0: screamless The TV drama is imagined. The work and the guests are real. Making a soundtrack. Track, track. Opening scene and action.
1: Dan, yeah. What are you doing? Packing a bag. <laughs> where,
0: where are you going?
1: I'm off to California. <laughs> I'm off to Skywalker Sound.
0: What because our guest this week said, "Yeah, sure, come and hang out. Yeah. Meet some people."
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I've I've put the house on the market. <laughs> I've sold the kids. And I'm packing
0: a bag. Yeah, I think he was being polite. I don't think he meant come and move in with me and, oh. you know. Have my life. I think I've a, a bit rash. Maybe. Call the kids back. <laughs> <sighs> but it's so quiet without them. <laughs> so we are here at your studio once more. We are. And we are recording the entire show, apart from behind the scenes, which we've done already. Yes. Uh, from here today. We are. Yeah. Which is nice. Which is nice. Yeah. So for those who don't know... Dan and I live about 100 miles apart. Yep. So we've been making this album. I suppose it's better to be in the same room, which we've chosen to today. But it hasn't really presented too many obstacles. No,
1: we've kept in contact a lot. And obviously we've been on Skype loads. Yeah. So, yeah. And sending lots of ideas and stuff backwards and forwards and always talking through it as well, which.
0: Absolutely. Key to collaboration.
1: Absolutely. Collaboration. Collaboration. Collaboration.
0: Yes. So you might have guessed this week's guest is something to do with Skywalker sound. Yeah. We're incredibly lucky to have the amazing sound designer and recordist and supervising sound editor and probably many other hats that he wears, Tim Nielsen, on the show this week. Yeah. Which is a real treat. It certainly is. We were. A little bit like Kids in Sweet Shop. Uh, yeah, just, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but it was fabulous, and it was really nice of Tim to, uh, to join us. Without any further ado, then, shall we dip into Cue the Music?
1: Cue the Music. Cue. Cue the Music.
0: Hello. Hello. So here we are. In your studio, Dan, and we are here for one particular reason, but we've taken the opportunity to kind of review the album as well. Yes, so
1: we're going to review the album first, and then we're going to get on with the theme
0: tune. tune. Okay, so the album review this morning, we just kind of made a list of notes, didn't we? Uh, Yeah. We're generally quite happy.
1: Yeah, most of it is mixing notes. Yeah. There's very little in the way of changes we want to make. Apart from track nine, which we still think needs bringing more into line with the others.
0: Yes, that was done before Christmas anyway, yeah. wasn't it? Before yeah. the break. And you'd added a, a few little things, but we hadn't quite got to the end of track nine in terms of writing, I suppose. Yeah. So we need to, to finish that. And so track 10 is yet to be started. Yep. Yeah. That'll be the final track. And today we have spent a few hours on the theme tune, the which has been really interesting, actually. Uh, you had an idea ages ago about, well, in fact, we were on a Skype call, weren't we? We were, And yeah. uh, you just had a guitar in your hand and you were noodling the character one theme. Yeah. Or rather the piano left hand. <laughs> it was the left hand of it, yeah. It was... Yeah. And I was looking at you going... That sounds great, (laughs) which, you know, I'm sure you get all the time. No. But anyway, I think we kind of put a pin in that to come back to as a kind of starting idea for the theme tune. Yeah. Which we did today, all these months later. Yeah. And so uh, that's how we started it, didn't we?
1: We did, and we kind of, we took the two chords, but we didn't want to do the full character one theme. No. Although we think that this kind of... TV drama that we've made up so that we've got an excuse to write some music is is based really around character one. Yeah. We didn't want to use just the character one theme. So we took the first two chords and then elaborated on that.
0: Yes. We also thought about a theme for this album, which from very early on, water has been involved somehow, hasn't it? The, uh, The initial drone that was created from Lockwater... To the second character theme, seeming a little bit underwatery with the effects, it seems to have stayed with us somehow. Yeah. So we decided to try and make things really natural, outdoorsy, and we got some water involved for the music yeah. as well.
1: Yeah, we went down to the, you. You said, "Oh, I'll, if you put water in a big bowl and then you hit it, you get quite a nice kind of yeah slappy sound." So we could do like. Water snares, so yeah, stuff, something, rhythmic. something rhythmical, and then I said, Oh, well, I've got some metal bowls mm. down in the kitchen that are quite good. Then you went and hit it on the side, I you? did just because yeah. I wanted I was trying to figure out what kind of tune it mm. would be in and whether we could possibly use that. And so I hit, I hit, filled it with a bit of water, hit it on the side, and then it was like, Oh, that makes quite a nice n- noise. So the mm. next point was, Okay, so now we need to fill them with exact amounts of water so that we can get the right tuning.
0: Yes. So we actually created the melody from the Water Bowls for the theme tune, Yep, which will then be doubled with, and again, taking that watery theme, some solo strings, but with the opening theme, making that sound like it's underwater as well. Yeah. And then bringing it in. Yeah, fully. which is
1: something we did uh, as well with Character 2, making them yeah feel like, you know, it was... That theme was hidden.
0: Yeah, there was a soft piano, wasn't there? And then we did pure effect, basically, uh, over the top of it. The other thing was that you had been noodling around these two chords. And so that's kind of how we started. And we carried on. We were getting to the point where it was like, are we just basing the whole theme on two chords? (laughs) At which point you very sensibly said, time for lunch. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And what did we have for lunch? Is Is it a wrap? It's a wrap. We had a wrap. <laughs> Which yeah. was very nice. So, yes, quite right. Bit of headspace. And then we came back and looked at, just took our minds off it and and watched some TV openings. Didn't we? Even yeah. dramas.
1: Yeah, some amazing openings. What was
0: that one with the Lost? <laughs> Land of the Lost. Land of the Lost. <laughs> if, if you have five minutes and want to chuckle, <clears throat> go to YouTube and yeah. uh, put in Land of the Lost theme Credits, uh, land opening, land, opening land credits, of the Lost
1: uh opening titles or um, title sequence will probably get you there
0: quicker. Absolutely ridiculous. It is. The
1: special effects are mind-blowing.
0: If you are thinking, how do I compete in this competitive world of composers? Just go and have a look at that. Yeah. And see how it used to be done. <laughs> just fabulous. There is hope for all of this. It's just fabulous. <laughs> anyway. Yeah.
1: So, we recorded the guitars first. We did. Doing those just two chords mm. did the metal bowl then uh we added some percussion
0: we did in the forms of hitting guitars your, your guitars <laughs> hope yeah. we haven't damaged anything <laughs> uh, but in a kind of counter rhythm as well yeah and uh, a bit of thigh slapping
1: a bit of thigh slapping in there as well a yeah. little bit later mm-hmm. yeah because that's always good isn't it mm. you know we, we're technically just at the end of panto season so i think we're allowed <laughs> to do thigh slapping and then some synth bass again which is obviously the cat and the chord monopoly yeah
0: Um, and again it seems to be the glue that keeps this album together is uh that that cat synth bass
1: it was after lunch when we came back and and thought you know what we we do need to to change it up a bit so we were umming and ahhing about how to which chord to go to and this that and the Mm -hmm. other and then you just stood up and basically played the next sequence on
0: yeah i mean one it, of the it just it, it just needed a bit of noodling around really yeah. didn't it until you find the space for the jigsaw piece
1: and that was that was it and then mm. re-recorded the guitars then obviously because different chords different chords yeah uh, but they're still just scratch guitars they'll get done properly at some point And that was kind of where where we're at. And we Mm. thought, well, I started then thinking about how we can bring in some of the other atmospherics and electronics that are
0: throughout the album and start... Which is a really good thing to do, I think. Yeah,
1: putting them in there so that it all feels like one whole thing. And you said, oh, well, maybe you should do that and I'll go away and start looking at the strings.
0: Yeah, and maybe because we've made it quite an intimate, small production for this track, maybe some solo strings rather than yeah. the, the big strings that you hear later on. So I think the album actually has to kind of build to those, it kind of yeah. earns those strings yeah. at the end, doesn't it? Um yeah, so, so I think solo strings would be better placed anyway. Shall we go behind the scenes? Uh, yes, please. So this week we have Tim Nielsen, Skywalker Sound. Yeah. It's a goodie. It's, yeah, it's a couple of like, ooh,
1: stories and stuff. It's,
0: That's some great advice.
1: Yeah, brilliant yeah. advice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, here we go. In a way, Tim Nielsen's career at Skywalker Sound started in 1996 while still a student. That year, he was selected as Skywalker Sound's first official intern, spending the summer under the guidance of Gary Rydstrom. After graduating he moved to the San Francisco area to begin work at Skywalker Sound. In 2001, he moved to New Zealand to work on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. His other productions include Pirates of the Caribbean, Galaxy Quest, Hellboy, Solo a Star Wars Story, Finding Dory, and the recent Netflix fantasy series The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. In addition to his film work, he's an avid sound effects recordist and enjoys writing about and teaching others about sound effects recording and design. Tim Nielsen, welcome to the Making a Soundtrack podcast. Well,
2: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: So, Tim, you have a very long job title, it seems. Um, What does being a sound designer, supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer at Skywalker Sound involve on a day-to-day basis? Who do you work closest with on productions?
2: Yeah. So each of those terms is sort of can be a separate job, I suppose, for different people. It turns out these days I'm sort of wearing all of those hats on more and more shows. So brief description would be as a supervising sound editor, I'm in charge of hiring the crew, uh, overseeing the crew, doing schedules and budgets and managing time and those sort of things. As the sound designer, my job is sort of to interact with the director, the producer, the picture editor, the sort of clients of the show. And have an overarching concept for the soundtrack i would say sort of to be that liaison on behalf of the film itself and the the creative sound work in addition to on something like a star wars movie creating very specific sound effects that don't exist that we don't have that need to be made or recorded so there could be a very practical version of a sound designer and a bigger philosophical title of a sound designer and i tried to do both of those and the different movies they vary. and then as a recording mixer my job is to take all of the work that we've done up to that point and with the clients in the room, we go to the to the mixing and the final mix and make all of our final creative decisions about the soundtrack, you know, at, by the end of it, when they walk away, the soundtrack is done, ready to be released. And so they're all part of a cohesive whole. I think, you know, what we're doing nowadays, uh, you know, there's overlap. A really good editor might be sort of mixing as he edits and mixing to some degree is still editing. You're choosing what sounds to play, what sounds not to play. I think this division is a little bit artificial but they do they do have they are different disciplines and i think that each of them has a different sort of skill set and a different mentality and a different workflow so on a day-to-day basis my job may be on something like dark crystal i'm on any given day i'm doing all three of those hats so i'm meeting with the crew and we're talking about where we're at what needs to be done what has been done i'm making new sounds or i'm interacting with the director and playing sounds for him or her and making sure that you know they're happy with, with the direction we're going Uh, and if i'm mixing you know usually when we're mixing we're concentrating just on the mix but these days as things like visual effects come in late we're always editing while we're mixing and we're designing while we're mixing and so the job title is sort of blurring a bit i would say these days they used to be more divided disciplines i think pretty rare in the early days maybe that a supervising sound editor would also be the re-recording mixer but on a project like a netflix project which has a bit more limited Funds and a little bit limited schedules, you know, people have to be able to do more than one job, more and more, I think. And I think that's the direction we're sort of heading.
0: When you look at any kind of Star Wars documentary or anything, those sound effects just look like so much fun. To actually go into the world and try and find things for a complete fantasy world, you know. Yeah. It can be anything.
2: What's really fun for me about the Star Wars is, you know, having been a fan and certainly a fan of Ben Burt's amazing work which yeah. is why you know the, the whole company that i work for was founded on ben's work and the, and those films um so it's an incredible honor and a challenge to step into mm. th- that role and try to you know honor everything that came before but of course feel like you want to make something that's also your own and you know mm. uh, there are new things in the movies that don't exist in heaven so it's not like we just pull everything from the library so but they have to sound like they're within that family still. They can't sound like they don't belong in that world. So it was very challenging, but it was incredibly fun to sort of come up with a whole new palette of lasers, you know, and the the style of what Ben had done, but also wanting it to have my own style and wanting it to fit what the film needs. So it was, it was that both a great challenge and a great joy to get to do that for sure. And, and and to have the time to sort of, send people out and go out and just record really interesting new things and we recorded you know hydrofoil jet boats in san diego and we recorded huh. massive massive electricity in texas we found people were able to do six foot electrical arcs and things that you know, you just don't normally have the resources to get to go play in those worlds so um, that's a luxury, definitely yeah. to have sort of that ability. But we've recorded thousands, you know, thousands of new sounds on on Solo, and um, that's always the goal: is you know get something new in in every film. We don't want to just rehash all the sounds we've used before. We always want to create new things for ourselves, and the film deserves that. So
1: that's great. You mentioned you were a fan, and Gareth and I are big fans of uh, Star <laughs> Wars as well. Um, yeah, just a, just a little bit, um, but very. <laughs> well, you also come
2: visit.
0: Oh. Oh. We would yep, love to. Yeah, yeah, we would really love welcome. to. I can't come tomorrow because I'm at the cinema watching this new film. <laughs> Friday, we'll see you on Friday. Yeah,
2: yeah, Friday. <laughs> yeah you yeah. see us Friday, definitely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so
1: you mentioned being a fan. How was it then being an intern at Skywalker Sound?
2: I mean, it was, as you can imagine, sort of overwhelming and exciting and everything that went with it. Um, sort of strangely, I didn't go to film school with any intention of working in sound. I didn't really know of sound before I went to film school. I mean, I knew it existed, but I had never thought of it as a career or anything like that. And um, while I was there was the year Toy Story came out and Gary Rydstrom came and he brought Toy Story to play for USC students. And then he did a lecture for a sound class that I was in that Tom Holman, who created THX back in the day. And these things Tom taught a sound class that uh, I was in. And um, it was really an eye opener for me. And I saw it as this amazing new opportunity that I'd never thought about. And I sort of shifted gears completely and sort of immersed myself uh, into the world of sound in school. So when I heard that Skywalker was taking an intern, I thought, well, I have to apply. I'm never going to get it, but sure. Why not apply? And um, for some reason uh, I was picked. And so I came up for the summer for eight weeks and um, I still tell people that I still remember very specifically the smell of coming into the building for the first time. It's funny how smell is such a strong memory, but Mm. it's just, it's not that it's a bad smell. It's a lovely smelling place, but it's just funny that that memory is still so intrinsically locked in my brain from that first day of walking in there and I mean it's a beautiful building and it's an amazing place to work and and so yeah it was just for eight weeks it was just absorb everything that I could you know and I, and again after the internship ended I never thought that I would land a job there I never thought anything more than that that I had this great opportunity to spend eight weeks working with one of the best people in the world and getting to meet a lot of other people and learning about the technology and just the things that you never learn in film school what how things really work on the real world of course you have to go out into the real world to learn them so it was a great glimpse but it was still it was only eight weeks and so it ended and i sort of got my car and drove back to l.a and i thought well that was that you know that was the end of that and um and so yeah it was an amazing experience and um it's so long ago now that i sometimes sort of forget about just that excitement every day of walking into that building you know and just going you know how lucky i am to have to have had that opportunity. I, I I never forget how lucky I was to have had that.
0: So getting a bit more niche now, you've worked on productions with some amazing soundtracks. Some modern scores use a lot of musical sound design. What are your thoughts about the trend towards sound design over more traditional instrumentation?
2: I think it's great in the long run. I honestly do. I think that, again, this division between music and sound design is something of an artificial division or at least it can be and i i think that uh i never have a problem with musicians going into a more sound designy soundscapey world but the important thing that when and, and by the same token i would hope that they don't get upset when something that i try to do or we try to do becomes somewhat musical i mean there have been plenty of instances where i've done something that turns out to be very musical and it doesn't necessarily work with the score. And sometimes the music is chosen. Sometimes my work is chosen. And again, we're always choosing what we think is best for the film. I think it becomes really important if the, if the sound designer and the, and the composer really want to work in these sort of ways of crossing into each other's paths, that the lines of communication are just open and that we hear what the other is working on. And, and there's some collaboration. And we say, like, hey, I really think I can do something cool in the sound effects here, but it would kind of only work if you do this with the music. You know, for example, stay out of the strings because the sound design here is going to be all in the high frequencies. So maybe you can consider leaning on percussion more here and giving me something to drive through. But, you know, if I have a scene with a, a giant elephant, please don't score it with French horns. You know, the exact same <laughs> frequency range and the exact same sort of, you know. So these are things that that ideally are talked about it, it rarely happens, I'll be honest. I wish it happened more. There's, yeah. there's just limits on time, and everybody's busy, and there's always these best intentions and stuff. But it can happen, and um, and when it happens, it's always to the benefit of the soundtrack, both for the music and for the, mm. the sound design. I mean, there was a, a story, I remember on, in, on Lord of the Rings, there was a sequence that um, Brent Burge, who was the effects editor, and I really worked hard on, and we did something that was very musical. And um, when it got to the final mix, it just really didn't work with the music. You know we hadn't heard the music and really everything kind of crashed together and and so you know the first few passes music was really playing over this and we were a little disappointed because we really thought we had some opportunity to create this really tense moment with sound design and uh, eventually at some point i we remember peter hearing it and and going wait what's what's behind the music let me hear that and then realizing oh there's something else here that's very interesting you know and at that point we retooled the music we ended up dropping the music for a section of the scene and And moving to sound design and going back and forth. And I think that back and forth can be very powerful. I mean, I think that not many people would argue that scoring a movie from pop to pop is probably a bad idea. I mean, it's bad for the music. It's bad for the movie. But I understand why it happens in the absence of having sound effects, directors and composers lean on the music for emotion. They get used to that. They, they fear taking it away because they've been listening to it for so long. So I do think, again, early collaboration, anytime it happens, is always so much to the benefit of the project. And um, I've never had a situation where the soundtrack has suffered for the composer and the sound design actors really working together you know yeah
1: it's something that's come up a lot when we've been interviewing people i think communication is key and the more departments that talk to each other the better really because uh, especially something as close as you say is sound design and composition
2: yeah i uh, think um, if you've seen chernobyl that was you know came out uh, last year the I haven't, HBO. Haven't series. Seen it yet. oh i mean that's the best example I've seen in many, many years of a collaboration between sound design and music to the point yeah. where you cool. literally don't know which is which. And I love that when that happens. Mm. And I love it because I know Stefan Hendrix, the sound designer of that project. And I know friends who know the composer, Icelandic uh, composer. I can't remember her name. Let's wrap my head out.
0: Yeah. Pronounce um, it terribly. <laughs>
2: <if> I tried. <laughs> but, yeah. but she she went to, you know, old power plants and recorded a lot of sounds to use in her music and they did a lot of things that were very musical and there was this back and forth in this collaboration and um and clients who knew how to use sound in music and it is one of the most cohesive tracks that i've heard in a long time as far as the seamless blending of music and sound design uh, it's just a gorgeous powerful mm. track and it's really it's it's one of the best examples i've seen lately of the right way to use music and sound design together
0: i know she had high praise for that didn't she and uh, didn't she also score the joker joker maybe. that's right yeah, did, yeah yeah
2: she's got a high praise for that as well she's a very sort of ambient soundscape composer i would say it's a lot less melodic and and more sort of uh you know experimental and things like that which i think is which is great i think it's mm. fantastic
1: i think there's quite a move towards a kind of mood and feeling type of score over over melody i'm very much you know i call them myself a wallpaper kind of guy because i tend to just i don't like hitting every single beat i would rather Mm. set a general mood a general tone and kind of stick to that um but there is definitely a move towards the more just finding that mood and just sitting with it and not not messing too much with it
2: yeah if you think of you know the composing in the 80s, which was very theme driven, right? Yeah. And Star Wars, of course, is the prime yeah. example of that. Yeah. And, and I think even John Williams is sort of shying away from that. We don't have that sort of same thematic sort of melodic music, I think, nearly as much as we used to. And again, that kind of music, when it's done well, is amazing. But there mm-hmm. is the fear, always my fear with that type of music is that you know, I'm glad to hear you say you're not trying to hit every beat of action because that's a big problem for us when we go to mix any project. Is you know, I I just tweeted the other day something I uh, that like you know, if you if you want to be a composer for an action movie, you the most important thing is to learn how to compose around the action. You can't compose the action, you know. And no, it's just you know, we call it Mickey Mousing. That's what yeah, we're doing it yeah, yeah, because it's sort yeah. of the old cartoon. Do, do, yeah, do exactly. You know,
1: yeah.
2: And it's and um and again with early collaboration, you know, on solo um i was i would send uh the composer my tracks you know a 5.1 mix of where we were at with the sound effects so that he could at least at least hear what we were doing and if and and maybe make choices in his composing or maybe or not i don't know every case but you know at least make available and we would get mixes from them of what the music was doing so i could go okay well he's doing something here i have to maybe think a little bit about this and even if you don't have this perfect collaboration at least to be able to hear what the other person is doing is pretty important i mean it's a train wreck when Somebody that's come that's composed every single scene and every single moment and every single beat. And of course, we have no choice but to put things in sync with explosions and gunshots and punches and everything that goes with it. And I can't tell you how much of a struggle those mixes can be Mm. when, you know, Mm. when everybody realizes now it's not working. But now we have to sit there and try to dissect every little thing and figure out, all right, well, how do we make this work (laughs) now and go back and forth? And so yeah just that simple collaboration up front can be so beneficial and time-saving and then leaves you time to do the creative work which is all you really want the mix to be is a creative experiment and not just like troubleshooting of like oh man we're in trouble what do we do now you know yeah
1: there's a question that we ask all of our guests Hmm. which is what advice would you give to your younger self or anyone out there wanting to start out in the industry
2: it's interesting we have we talk a lot about how the industry is changing even in the 20 years that i've sort of been working Hmm. and stuff and you know So my, my joking reaction would be run away, you know, (laughs) uh, which of course I don't mean, but of course, you know, it's a different industry than it was when I started. And I'm, I'm glad that I sort of got to start in the period when I did, I think that streaming is going to be a big change in how everything is made. We're definitely in a transition period. And so it's a little bit the wild West and a little bit of a rough landing. I think right now Mm -hmm. as we all sort of figure out what's this going to mean for how we work and, the size of crews and the schedules and the budgets and all of the things and how do we still try to do the best work we know how to do under these new circumstances um i think anybody starting out these days has to be sort of multidisciplined. i don't think you would want to start out and say i'm going to just be an editor or i'm going to just be a mixer or i just want to you know do one of the other. i think you're going to have to be able to wear multiple hats and the technology certainly allows that and i think that anybody starting out would be well suited to learn as much as they can about all the aspects of this you need to be able to be fluid you're going to be able to move quickly um and you're going to need to be wear multiple hats it's just the way that it is um it's also fun to wear those multiple hats because you know in the old days we would bring our tracks to the mixer and a lot of times we wouldn't feel like we maybe had a lot of save past that point you know and mm. until we got to a supervising stage you know you kind of the mixer would take your tracks and go off and do what they want and you kind of like going well but no but i me- what i meant was for this to be used for <laughs> that and you know sometimes it was very collaborative sometimes not but something like dark crystal i wore many many hats and it was incredibly stressful but it was also very rewarding because i Mm. got to generate the soundtrack really that i wanted and luckily the director and i were very much on the same page about what we wanted that show to sound like so it's very rewarding as well but so that my first thing would be you know learn everything you can about all the different things you know and then i think if you want to work in sound design i think it's really crucial that you start recording your own sound effects right from the beginning of your career um I think that it's what helps separate you from other people. You know, your own library and your own taste becomes mm. apparent as you start building your library of sounds. Learning to record sounds well makes you a better editor and learning to edit well makes you a better recordist and all of the things go hand in hand. I mean, if you there's nothing like learning if how to uh, record a door close when you have to go and edit that door. You know, the first time you send somebody out to record a door, which is a little bit of a test I always have somebody do, you know, and they record an opening and closing and then you show them the scene where the guy's pounding on the door, then rattling it, then moving the handle, and you realize that they, they, got, they recorded one-tenth of what they actually need for that. So, you know, recording is not a passive uh, exercise. You know, you have to actively engage with what you're recording, and that's that's one thing that I think a lot of people miss early on. I think they just think, my job is just to go out there, hit record, and just gather whatever's there. No. You know, mm. your job is to manipulate everything you're recording and get the best sound you can out of it and get the most varied sound out of it. So I do think that I'm very grateful that I started recording very early on and my library keeps growing and it's always a source of inspiration to go back and listen to old things and have those available. It doesn't mean we don't we always record new things on every movie, which because that's also part of the fun gets me out of the office. I don't have to stare at my computer screen all day. Um, So, I mean, I would say that's the other thing is, you know, really, you can buy a really decent recorder now for a couple hundred dollars that you can record completely usable sounds and the biggest blockbusters in Hollywood, there's not much of an excuse anymore for not recording your own sounds and not building up your library and stuff. And I think that's really important for anybody coming into now. It's,
0: it's something actually that Dan and I have both been involved with. Uh, Dan did a feature film last year where I know you were recording sounds down on the beach and things like that. Yeah, I've also got a, a big bunch of themed sound packs. And actually when we started the album – that this podcast is based around, the first thing we did was go and record loads of sounds so we can get them back in, manipulate them. And uh, the the very first track, I'd recorded a, a lock. So, you know, for a river. Yeah. Uh, the, the gates with the water flooding in. Uh-huh. Uh, and so we created a drone out of that and left a little bit of the dry signal in there. And there was a little harmonic. Dan said, oh, I've got a little idea for a melody. And then we we're away. Yeah.
2: Well, I think that, yeah, and and some of my best sounds and some of my best sound design have come completely as accidents, discoveries while recording something. But one of the favorite sounds I've ever recorded was um, I was just recording some props for 102 Dalmatians and I needed an electric razor. And then I needed I had this big metal bowl that drops to the ground. And for some reason, I thought, well, I wonder what would happen if I just touched this vibrating razor to the bottom of this bowl. Well, it oh just gosh. began to <laughs> sing in these ridiculous overtones. Wow. and I put the microphone right inside of it, and it's one of the coolest recordings I've ever made. It's actually the recording I was just talking about in The Lord of the Rings that we, that we used in this thing. It's this very musical sound moment that now is, it's when all of the hobbits are hiding out in brie and the ringwraiths are sneaking in at night to kill them and the sound the music drops out and it goes into this very eerie spooky sort of small section where they're creeping through the building and if you listen to it that sound is just a razor on a metal bowl and it was a complete accident wow and um it's still i've used it in a number of things but so i again this is why i think that you know what we all do i think as composers sound designers a lot of what we do is play and play is very important for the creative mind you know you're and so recording as just a, a, a brainstorming exercise, it's it's a very liberating way. Like, you know, when I, when I get stuck on something that I have no idea how to approach it, the first thing I do is I grab a microphone and I head down to the Foley stage after hours or something. And I just start hitting things together and rubbing things together and just start trying to generate some sound. And that sparks an idea and, you know, usually leads to some creative solution. And um, I'm sure it's no different, you know, when you start off composing, you're just like, first thing is just like, I don't know what to do, but start putting something there. Because as soon as you start generating some sound, you start to know what doesn't work. And then you start honing in on what does. And and so it's just fun. And I think, you know, in in a job that isn't always fun, I mean, there's plenty of fun moments, but there's also plenty of stress and everything else. I think it's Mm -hmm. really important to be able to just go off and play and experiment. And, you know, again, some of the most interesting things, I know Gary Rydstrom always talks about, you know, A lot of his favorite sounds again were complete accidents, and uh, that you know he didn't set out to record that. He was just recording something else, and that didn't work. And then he found something there, and he was like, "Oh, what happens if I push this this way?" And you know, and it made this amazing sound. And um, so, yeah, Yeah.
0: we had uh, a foley artist on as a guest, actually, Melton Batoc, who's doing amazing things in the UK dramas. She says she she'll be out in a restaurant, and she said her advice would be to not look if you can hear something, not look, and just. Think of the sound and then look around and see how it's being made and just touch things and hit things and rub things and you know she's just always on the lookout for for something
2: yeah well, i just had breakfast this morning with uh shelly Roden, one of our foley artists from skywalker and you know anytime i'm out in public with her it's the same thing it's sort of like she'll pick up something and then she'll sit down <laughs> and pick it up and set it down or something and just kind of, you know always thinking ahead oh that one sounds really good or um and yeah, I mean, uh, of course, Foley is the perfect example of, you know, the risk is you can get very sort of passive very quickly and just like, okay, I just need something to set down in this. But no, Foley at its best is as creative as anything that I do. And mm. and um, it's always a joy to see them. They just love to experiment and try new things. And, you know. Um,
0: can you imagine a Foley artist Christmas party? They must be, just, <laughs> must be amazing to watch. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, but uh, again, there's a, a perfect example like Foley. Uh, the collaboration has to be there between what they do and what I do as well, because a lot of times we're overlapping and there, I ask them to do something and I'm going to do something. And so um, I'm often down there listening to what they're doing and, and, and giving advice or, you know, saying, okay, well, what we're gonna, We're trying to do is this. So w- let's try this. And I mean, you know, again, with everything that we do, you know, film is a collaborative business. Nobody works in a vacuum. Mm. And uh, when people try to work in a vacuum, only bad things come out of it, you know? Yeah. And so uh, between all the departments, I think the more communication, the better.
1: Mm. I, I think the, uh, the point about how you differentiate yourself from others by recording is also something that is very true for us. I mean, we now live in an age where we can basically have an orchestra in a computer. And yeah. it, to most people, it sounds good enough. You know, a lot of people wouldn't know that it wasn't real. So the playing field is, is considerably levelled. So how you then sound different from everybody else is by doing different things. So recording, you know, I've got a ridiculous amount of analogue gear I'll take even a synth that is computer-based one, and then I'll run that through an old spring reverb or something to give it extra character, to give it something else, you know. Sure. And it's those little things that will differentiate you from somebody who is just 100% in the box, just using...
2: And the same thing, I mean, there are now enough sound libraries that you could probably find most things that you would ever need that have been recorded, you know, between the sort of boutique sound effects that are being sold and the big, huge... CD sets that Hollywood, Edge, and and these people are selling and stuff. If you had the money, you could sort of uh, have pretty much... And and for somebody who's working on a TV show where they may have literally only days to try to cut something together, then you need that. But if you have the time, I think it's wonderful to go out and record as much new as you can. I mean, I don't think everything needs to be recorded new for every single project. Of course, it's sort of like you... I think you would limit yourself in the same way because, again, like we might have recorded brilliant explosions well i don't necessarily need to redo those for every Mm -hmm. single movie that i do it's Mm -hmm. not practical to do that but finding in every movie something uh, and for me a lot of it is backgrounds i love to do backgrounds uh rain wind water elements you know cityscapes all these things and so i always try to figure out ways to record new things for the sort of the what i think of the base layer of our soundtrack which is all the backgrounds the ambiences this world we're going to sort of build up from there and um you know, I hear constantly in television shows and stuff, you know, the same premiere edition wind or something. And it's like, <laughs> I understand why those things <laughs> are used. I understand that. Yeah. But I think, you know, if, if the people had a chance to go record some of their own and just, you know, um, and, you know, it it also forces me to not be complacent with my own library Like I said, the library is not big enough that we probably could cut most things from it. But um, I think that, you know, I don't want to become complacent that way. I want to force myself to, you know, try to do something new on every project and and things like that.
1: Mm. The other point, I think, which is uh, we've heard from many, many guests is wearing multiple hats. You know, I've been doing this for 10 years and in the 10 years that I've been doing it, it's changed considerably. And when you are, especially down the, the, the sort of lower end of things, you're not only are you a composer, you can quite often be a sound designer, a mixer, a mastering engineer, you name it. So, you know, all these things you've got to, you've got to learn and you've got to get a, at least a healthy grip on. Maybe not master the whole lot, but at least get a healthy grip on so that you can you can hold your own in those departments as well.
2: Yeah, I find that when I'm if I'm asked to go and sort of do a lecture about sound, inevitably, my lecture becomes half about music, because what I really want to sort of convey is that if you want to be a composer, you really ought to at least know what the other part of the soundtrack is and how we do things and things like that. Again, it alleviates a lot of these potential issues of Scoring directly on top of action which to somebody who's not thinking about all the other things that are going to come later and not thinking about what happens in a final mix and this is I can understand why these things happen you know I understand if you're a composer and you're starting out it's instinctive that if something happens on screen you want to synchronize something to it. But what's dangerous is not to realize that, well, somebody is going to synchronize something to that later, but that's not maybe you, you know, somebody else has to put an actual explosion there. And now if you've scored it with a timpani and a cymbal crash, now, <laughs> you know, and and again, I, I understand why these things happen. And I, I understand, again, a composer sort of working in a vacuum feels like they have to generate that action. They have to, you know, that feels natural in a way, uh, because it is natural. Like it seems it will seem weird to write music, right up to an explosion, then not have something and then come back without having the explosion there to give you that punctuation yeah. that you need. Yeah. I understand that composing that probably doesn't feel natural. So it's a discipline that has to be learned, I think. But again, this is why yeah. if the composer has access to the track that's being built up, they can go, oh, I see why I shouldn't do that because there's a huge thing right there already. So if I can go, you know, explosion, that's going to be much better than right on the explosion. And again, that's just experience, I think. And that's, you know, again, learning from, other people so i think in general the trend these days is to write too much music i will be honest i I think most composers would agree and it's almost never to the benefit of the movie or the music to have that much music i mean to me the power of film music is really in how it enters and how it resolves this is where the power comes from and if the score never resolves if it just continues on and off the brain at some point loves to filter things out If the music is all the Mm -hmm. time your brain just goes okay i'm not gonna pay attention to that anymore there's nothing wrong with writing, you know, scoring an action scene, but you know, it's so much more powerful to score half of an action scene and then let it go into realism and then come back in and out. And, Things. I mean, I think there are brilliant composers. I think Alan Silvestri is an amazing composer for this kind of thing because I think he really can score around action and come in and out of the music and start and stop. It's like we we're terrified of stopping the music. You know, we're terrified of having it go quiet for a moment.
1: Yeah, it's funny because I remember I when I went to see. she's going back a bit now, but when I went to see The Dark Knight at the cinema, there's that whole chase sequence under where they go below the city. Yeah. And I just remember being in the cinema and I was absolutely just enthralled in it. And then all of a sudden, my brain just went, hang on, there's no music. Yeah, And I hadn't noticed that there was no music, but I thought, oh, wow. They've, they've <laughs> actually te- they've actually gone, do you know what? this This doesn't need music. There's enough going on here.
0: But it seems you know. like a really brave choice, doesn't it? But actually, it really makes sense.
1: Yeah, it does seem like a brave choice because we've been literally hit with music from start to finish in in many many movies and tv shows especially i think
2: and spielberg is one of the better ones about knowing when to use music and when not to and um i I, you know if you think about a lot of the really brilliant moments that gary has done with spielberg and and you know the t-rex attack no music yeah um warhorse which is a film that i worked on there's a oh. 17 minute trench battle there's no music i cut yeah. that whole sequence it was wow. bliss you know wow. it was just fabulous. like it was a fabulous but again it's like you say we think of it as courageous it's a little bit sad that we have to think of it that way yeah. it should be the way we do you know i just saw um the brilliant um creative film parasite which i don't know if you've seen um oh, no. sounds scary of, uh no it's sort of it's i His films. It's I. I worked on a film called Snowpiercer, and Bong Joon Ho is the director, and uh, he makes these just insane films. I don't know how to describe it, but insane. But (laughs) there's probably ten minutes of music in that whole movie, and when it comes on, it's incredibly powerful and incredibly effective because you haven't been being hit over the head with it nonstop. Mm. And so, you know, I I realize that when I go to these talks about sound design, it it ends up me basically begging the directors and the composers to stop putting so much (laughs) music in, and it's not just because. I want sound effects to win. It's because I really feel that the music is losing its power in so many of these things because it's just, and it, you know, it's also, if you're asked to write 90 minutes of music versus 40 minutes of music, of course, that 40 minutes is going to be better written music than 90 minutes yeah. of music, mm. just by the nature of how much yeah. work you have to do. So, yeah. And I don't blame the composers and I don't even blame the directors, but it's a, it's a lost opportunity to me that, that. Yeah, uh, you know.
0: And like you said earlier, if you wait until the editing room to make those decisions and just everyone's doing all of it, yeah. then it's going to suffer. And, you know, if you communicate very early on, then you can come up with something that's collaborative and special.
2: Well, and somebody pointed out, I don't who said this, but I heard somebody say once that the mixed stage is a very expensive edit room. <laughs> you know, meaning when you decide to make those decisions in the middle of your mix, now you're wasting the creative time that ought to be better spent on something else. Yeah. Those decisions should have all been made long before we got to that stage. Um, and sadly, it just, you know, mm. it doesn't happen enough. And um, so, yeah, if people take away one thing, it's just, you know, collaborate early on and try to make those creative decisions before you get so far deep into it that everybody has done the job of everybody else.
1: It's difficult when each department is working at the same time, you know, heading towards that that final deadline. So I understand why it happens more often than it it should, but uh, yeah.
2: For example, what I try to do is if I can is Have a spotting session fairly early on with the director and the picture editor and we try to invite the composer a lot of times too if we can and and that's where you know i'll be a little courageous sometimes maybe overstep my bounds but i'll be the one to say like hey by the way here's an idea this could be really cool if you score right up to here and then drop off and let me handle this section here's why i'm not just doing it for ego but i really have some idea of you know in the middle of a trench battle it would be really nice to be in the head of the person in the middle of the battle well that's going to be hard if you just lay huge score Mm. over the top of it you know it has a different effect on what it's Mm. doing and so if you withhold that until we have the big release and that's when the score comes in it's gonna be that much more emotional and then we've had this experience and i think of castaway the robert zemeckis movie that had no music for the first hour hour 15 minutes What boy when he's sailing away from the ocean that score piece comes in pretty powerful stuff yeah huge <laughs> yeah. yeah and if they had scored everything on the island you wouldn't have nearly that experience so that stuff is courageous and I wish we had more of that I think of some of my favorite directors um, like Peter Weir fame you know amazing director from Australia but you know if you look at his films 20% score maybe you know just really knew when to bring the music in when to leave it out and you know so many of the modern movies are 75 80 85 percent score yeah. you know and that's just Rarely have ever got to the end and went, "Wow, that was the perfect amount of music for that." <laughs> so, could have used even more. We could have gone to 94 percent. um <laughs> But I don't want it to sound like just sour grapes on my part because I just want to always play the sound effects. That's not really true. I love film music. I love the power of it. I love what it can do. I just lament the fact that, you know, I feel like it's overused to the point of being ineffectual a lot of times these days. That's my fear.
0: We've spoken about it quite a lot, actually, over the course of the podcast in terms of not being afraid of silence. You know, the the drama that can be created from nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's something that we're very aware of. And actually, all of the guests that have come on are very aware of it as well.
2: Yeah, and I think even within composing, you know, to to go to a a minimalist sort of approach for certain parts, you know, to have a Mm. big score where it needs a big score... And then, but that doesn't mean the whole movie has to have a big score. It might mm, be that, yeah. you know.
0: We were talking about this earlier on today, actually. And uh, one example that we were talking about was Thomas Newman's score for Skyfall. It, it's kind of this combination of really big, traditional kind of Bond score and sound design and just setting the scene. So it's uh, it's good balance.
2: Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, again, just as music starting and stopping, you know, changing up your instrumentation variety. I mean, I try that when I teaching editing to people, about even as something as simple as a background, I say, if you step outside your door and you just listen for five minutes, it's not a steady sound. Right. Things are coming and going. A dog barks. It stops. A car goes by. A jet flies overhead. Even the wind picks up and then settles back down and um, so even trying to convince people like when you're just cutting the room tones and the airs and the backgrounds for your project even something as simple as that needs movement it needs change over time right this is what the brain is affected by it's not affected by steady flat sounds now you can use that to your advantage going to a very pure steady thing will really hone focus and really make people uncomfortable and all these things but you know very quickly the brain will tune out things that aren't changing and so even something in simple as the backgrounds. It's like, I want to see variety. I want to see movement and changing from one sound to the other. And the brain, you may not be conscious of any of these things. So much of what we do works on a subconscious level, but it does work that way, you know. And yeah, silence is one of the most powerful tools that we all have for anything. You know, it's like you can put somebody on the edge of their seat in in no other way possible than using silence. You know, there's nothing more uncomfortable than being in a theater and the sound is gone and people are afraid to move because they don't want to make sound, you know, to be the one to Jizzled a popcorn bag, you know things like that. So
0: I, that reminds me, I went to the cinema. It was a really old theater to watch Gravity, <laughs> and I had a bag of popcorn. <laughs> and I, you know, I was, I was barely touching it, and I had people tutting and turning. <laughs> around. It was so quiet. Yeah, In space, right. yeah, 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 yeah.
2: No, it's amazing, and um that's I think what all of our goal should be is to try to convince up and coming filmmakers to. Learn as much about sound and music and how to use them and look at really great films. And, you know, the great Russian director Tarkovsky, it, it had this philosophy that you can only hear one thing at a time. Like mm. literally you hear one sound. If you look at the film, The Mirror, you never hear two sounds playing together. It's like if the camera moves from here to here, this is like water you hear it and then you don't hear this and then you move. And it's incredibly powerful and it's a very bold choice, but it's, it can work, you know, mm. and, um, And I think that this trend of that the technology allows us to put so much sound in so many speakers all the time. This is the real danger is that we do and we don't think about why we're doing it. And if you're not don't have a very good reason for putting something in all the 12 overhead channels that Atmos now gives me or whatever, you know, the first I remember the first kind of experiments in Atmos were, you know, Let's fill all the speakers. Well, but why? You know, why should yeah. we fill all the speakers? Even to you know, Dark Crystal was probably the most immersive of all the projects I did. But that world was perfect for that because it was a three-dimensional. We had stuff going on above us, but it was natural to the story. There have been plenty of films that we've done in Atmos where we've used the overheads very sparingly because it just wasn't necessary, and it wasn't. You know, I can't just put something up there for the sake of utilizing the speakers if it doesn't come out of the story and out of the needs of the film, and so i think there's a trend these days too of sort of overdoing everything especially when visual effects can provide you a shot with fifteen thousand spaceships all flying through the space at the same time well what are you going to do for the sound because you can't try to reproduce that or you sure shouldn't you (laughs) know and um what you think about like the work in the original star wars it was so focused partly out of necessity But, you know, yeah. that was part of the genius of that, too, is that you were guided through every shot, you know, and the sound helps in all these things. And I wish more filmmakers would trust in that today and not just try to one up every film with spectacle. Oh, I, you, you're you going to destroy New York City. Well, I'm going to destroy North America. Then the whole continent's going to sink into the ground. And then <laughs> the, the next film's is going to split the earth in half, and, you know, <laughs> and we just keep going for bigger and bigger and bigger. and um uh, I don't know, this, that trend scares me a little bit when the sound is sort of asked to mimic that trend. Mm-hmm. But we need more, we need to be big and loud and we need to have everything and every speaker going all the time. Please no, you know, let's not do that. Let's figure out how to focus the sound and how to focus the filmmaking. So
0: oh, that's great. Sounds like you're leading from the front there, Tim. <laughs> I don't the know who will
2: win, but uh, yeah. yeah. But no, that's we cool. have to sort of impart this into young filmmakers, I think as much yeah. as we can. Yeah. Well, Tim Nielsen,
0: thank you ever so much for joining us it's um oh, thank you so much really for kind me. You. it's been really fun yeah if there's anything we can do for you like the next star wars movie or anything you know <laughs> uh, i'll put just, in a good word just, yeah great. <laughs> 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 okay i have a note this is about getting together. We did have one little get-together before. We did. Uh, which was really nice. It wasn't really meant to be a, an official big get-together or anything. But we are coming to the end of this series of Making Soundtrack. Boo. Boo! So we thought just to celebrate the end of the series and to celebrate getting through to the end of the album, it would be really nice to go out and have a drink and... Invite anyone who wants to come. Yeah. So if you fancy a, a night of kind of light networking, I suppose, if you just want to come and... could call it that. Yeah. Or just have a chat. Yeah. Oh, well, that's what light networking is. If You work in the same industry. Yeah. yeah, I, suppose. yeah I, suppose, I suppose so. <laughs> so it's on Saturday, the 25th of January from 6 p.m. It'll be in the Royal Festival Hall on level two, the central bar, if you want to look it up. All the details are at makingyoursoundtrack.com so if you fancy coming along take a look come along let us know don't let us know turn up whatever you like
1: yeah there's a facebook event as well isn't there there is yeah so yeah if you'll be you want to go find and, um, that from
0: there yeah get more details there okay is that lunch that <laughs> <laughs> do you see what I did there yes i did <laughs> leave the jokes to me okay sorry that's a wrap that's a wrap how do you find us making a will tell you all you need to know links to the podcast social media links and there's information about us as well if you're enjoying the
1: podcast it would make our day if you could give us a positive rating or review and if you enjoyed this episode hit the share button and recommend it to someone
0: so that's it from dan's studio in folkestone fokey see you next week bye
1: And cut that bit out, <laughs> <laughs> or not?